My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcast. Check me out at dismantle.life. Email me at anthony at dismantle.life anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery. Thanks, Anthony. Well, I'm really glad to be here. And uh, so I am planning on sharing the dark darkness of the, <laughs> of the addiction and the sunlight of the sobriety So and recovery. Um, I have not had a drink or a drug since January 11th, 1986. And for that, I am extremely grateful. And, um, you know, I thought I would talk a little bit about how you know if you're an alcoholic Please. or an addict, because that for me was quite hard. Um, I always got really bad hangovers. So, you know, the first time I drank in high school and everybody said, oh, you were so much fun and so on. Well, you know, I, I had an instant blackout. And when I awoke, my head was around the you know, hanging over the toilet. So yeah. I didn't drink that often in high school and even in college because I would get, you know, sick and sure. uh, so on. But then I discovered marijuana <laughs> yeah. and I didn't get a hangover and that was really great. But um, so <laughs> for me, it it was very hard to imagine that I could have a drinking problem but I knew my life wasn't working because I was, um, I had finished my PhD at Stanford. One of the ways in my, my alcoholic family that I felt that I could pursue my own security was through being smart and getting degrees and having yeah. boyfriends. And, you know, so, um, I had, you know, that degree that I'd accomplished and I was in my third marriage in my late thirties. And already I was sneaking around and lying to him and mm. drinking. And so I, and after one really gross me out night where he was traveling and I just went to a bar, this was nine months from marrying my third husband. I go to a bar and pick up a stranger, you know, I mean, really, I, I went to a psychologist and I said, what the hell is wrong with this picture? <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, here's where it was confusing because I didn't drink every night. I didn't drink during the day. Many times I would have two drinks and not act, not need more. Yeah. 
So, uh, you know, a lot of people, your life's falling apart and you're thinking, well, you know, I'm not, it, I'm not drinking as much as those real alcoholics, you know, and I get, and I get high occasionally and, you know, that helps with the stress and blah, blah. But, um, so when I went to the psychologist, he's got the family history and so on. He said, well, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. And I said, what? (laughs) And then I thought, well, that can't be so bad. You know, the early stages. (laughs) (laughs) And then I've never actually heard it put quite that way. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, and, um, and it's a fatal disease and it will progress. So he said, you know, if you want to know if you really have a drinking problem and you're the only one that can prove it to yourself, he said, try having two drinks, no more, no less every day. You know, in the evening, obviously, not during work, but, you know, regular size drinks. Right. <laughs> so uh, I I did that, you know, and I kept seeing him because I did not like how my life was going. And after about six months, I could see the pattern so clearly. Sometimes I would have two drinks and stop and be just like a social drinker. Other times I'd have the second drink, the third drink, find the man, get the drugs, and sure. do the crazy behavior and put my life in danger and someone else's. And since I couldn't predict when that would be, after six months, I realized I better not have one drink at all because yeah. I could ruin my life and someone else's. And already my life wasn't working. And during that time in therapy, and I was not going to meetings yet, but I was starting to get the hang of it that I had no clue how to manage my feelings because I had been drinking them away and sexing them away and, you know, toking them away. So um, I realized if I wanted to be happy, I was going to have to not drink. And for some reason I was, well, that third husband was going to Al-Anon. He was very smart and he didn't confront me very often, but one time, you know, it was one of those, perfect little moments. He said, what would happen if this was your last beer? Hmm. And for some reason I bought it. And the next day he went to an Al-Anon meeting and right next door I went to an AA meeting. And I walked in, you know, in the mid eighties, all <laughs> it's mostly men. They're right. all smoking cigarettes. You know, <laughs> I only smoked cigarettes when I was at a bar drinking beer, you know, And so I sit down and honest to God, if I couldn't totally relate to those old geezers, (laughs) I mean, really something about the commonality of how life was falling apart and it had to do with alcohol Hmm. and they weren't using alcohol anymore. And then they talked about how their lives had gotten better. And I thought, Oh my God. Now, I had, you know, I'm a little leery about groups. Mm. I don't like groups much. Um, So I went to maybe three meetings a week, which to me seemed like an awful lot. Right. And I, you know, I got to know some people by face, but I didn't, you know, I, I didn't go early or stay late. I kind of went in and left. And, um, After three months and hearing these, and I found some women's meetings, which I really liked. uh, 
and hearing these women talk about their sponsors and how they, you know, if you really wanted to get better and not drink, you needed to do the 12 steps and um, that your sponsor would lead you through the 12 steps and how wonderful it was to have this person who was available to you and helped you. You know, I thought, Ooh, I want one of those, you know, (laughs) right. (laughs) It just sounded like it would be so comforting. And I felt so alone because I, I mean, that early sobriety is a rough space to be in because you can't use your old coping techniques and you haven't developed the new ones. Don't necessarily have a lot of friends yet. Yeah. Um, So after six months, then I was like both feet in. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps and I've never had to have another drink in my life. And that um, that third marriage lasted through my first year of recovery uh, we went to counseling together, you know, we had a trial separation, but still uh, it did not last. And so that that was the end of my third marriage. I felt like I had a big red three on my forehead of failure. But um, then a year after that, I, I met my husband, Peter, and, um, you know, with the therapy and the program, I became emotionally healthy enough, and I'll explain how we do that in a minute, that I have been able to be happily married <laughs> for 31 years. That's amazing. So and still very impressive. Yeah, it's a, such a such a gift, you know, because you, if you're not healthy, you can't draw healthy people to you. It, it's just the way it is. Fully understand what you mean because the negative energy, whether you know it or not, the negative vibes, the negative everything, you attract that negative energy to you. If you think you're having a bad day, you sure as shit will have a bad day. And it's hard sometimes <laughs> to learn how to have the proper coping mechanisms. And some days, some days you are having a bad day and bad days are fine, but you have to learn how to cope through them the right way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I fully believe in, I'm going to call it karma for lack Mm -hmm. of a better way to describe it. But I think that that karmic energy, positive or negative comes around. Oh yeah. Um, And before we dive into the next section, would you mind if I just ask one quick question about what, what did the psychiatrist see in terms of tells without giving away any medical secrets, of course, Mm -hmm. from a history perspective, that when he said that you are in the early stages of alcoholism, I'm just curious, Mm -hmm. what was, how did he, what did he see or she see? Well, I, I told him about my, uh, you know, drinking and going out to bars and picking up strangers. I told him about the family I grew up in, that my dad was a high functioning alcoholic, um, that I, you know, used marijuana all the way through grad school because what the hell was I doing at Stanford with all those smart people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? I got to tell you, I would be exactly like you were like, how did I get here? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how am I going to get out of here? Yeah. Like that. Too. Yeah. So I think, and, and he was very savvy. And later I learned that he was also in recovery. I see. Yeah. Okay. So he, he, he understood what was behind. Yeah. It was one of the, yeah, one of the rare psychologists who really understood uh, addiction and alcoholism. Quite often, it's the social workers who tend to be more fully informed, at least back then it was. Definitely. Sorry to interrupt. I I just wanted to be curious. I had some curiosity around that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, once I got a sponsor, she had some buddies and she um, had what, what's called a home meeting where once a month we would meet at a different gal's home. We'd order pizza and we'd chat and then we'd have an AA meeting. And so that was, 
you know, she invited me to that. And so I started meeting some other women in recovery. And of course, they say stick with the winners. So that was where I wanted to talk about the importance of sober friends, especially for women. I really knew how to appeal to men. You know, I played singles tennis with the men. I skied with the men. I was, you know, a jock. I, I knew, and I knew how to manipulate that romantic thing, you know, <laughs> I wasn't as comfortable with women. So I usually had one main man and then I had one female friend who was my using buddy. Yeah. And, you know, we'd party or get high and go take photographs or whatever. But I didn't really know how to appeal to women. Uh, you know, and it wasn't a matter of appealing. It was a matter of just being who you are and learning that yeah. you don't have to pretend to be anything or press any buttons. People uh, miraculously, without all the facade, the women in the program get to know you and they love you. You know, it's yeah. like somehow you're this higher power thing or however that energy works sends the right people to you. If if you're hanging out enough, you're going to meet them. Yeah. And that that's why people say, you know, once after three, after going to meetings, only three meetings a week for six months, and I saw that the people who had long-term sobriety and really thriving in their first few years were going to more than that. They were going to five or six. And of course, if you're going to five or six meetings, you're going to meet a lot of people. And yeah. preferably for me, it was women who had, you know, I always say there should be no romantic attraction to the person you have as your sponsor or your immediate friends. But um in early sobriety, it's so awful because you can't hang with your old friends. Yeah. You can't go to wet places and you don't necessarily have your new friends yet. So it is just one of the best things that's ever happened to me that I have a group of female friends now, and I have for quite a long time, that if the worst of the worst in the world happened to me in my life, I would call them and several of them would be right there with me. Of course. I have, I have the, that is my ultimate security. I mean, security isn't around worshiping other people, but it is the sense that you'll be okay if the awful thing happens. And it's almost like our higher power works through the people in the program to show us that we're lovable, to show us that we don't have to pretend, to lead us through the steps, to show us we can have fun. You know, so many gifts. And the big thing for me is I finally learned how to be at peace with myself. Yes. And that was such a big moment for me because I spent mine, um, as you know, it was alcohol, cocaine, and, and nicotine. And those things don't bode well to find peace at any level. (laughs) (laughs) It's a deadly combination and it's quite the opposite of peace. And part of me finding sobriety and being able to find and create the right habits to stay sober was finding peace and tranquility in my own life and being okay. What I call anti-materialism. I'm not making that up. That's I didn't make that up at all. But what I'm saying is when I just, didn't worry about the outcome of things. And I didn't, I wasn't racing for the next new this or the next better that or whatever it was. And just enjoyed my life for what I had. Things really slowed down and became positively manageable. And it was wonderful. And I just find that like that peace and that tranquility is an important step. At least it was for me. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what all of us have been seeking. 
I part of the thrill of the drunk or the romance or whatever is, you know, to try to tamp down that vibrating neediness inside of us, you know, and so it's um this whole thing about the emotional healing that is available, and it's not available only through 12-step programs. There's plenty of ways to heal emotionally, but if you have a substance abuse problem, you're already dealing with that. You might as well deal with all the other stuff that you didn't deal with because you were using drugs and alcohol. Right. Um, so I, I put down here that I wanted to talk a little about how do we heal emotionally, you know, Please. because I think a lot of people still have as a major goal in their life, not only, you know, material success, but a happy, healthy relationship with their families, or their loved ones, or, you know, their future husband or wife. Well, as we said before, if you're emotionally screwed up, which if you're using, you are, if yeah. you're, if you stop using and don't work some kind of program to get emotionally healthy, you're still pretty sick puppy. So yeah. if I want to draw an emotionally healthy person to me, I need to become emotionally healthy too. Life's a lot more fun when you've healed all those old, ugly wounds that we have a sense are rolling around deep inside of there. <laughs> right. So I think um, what, and I just did a little thing on Facebook on this. I think um, one of the reasons people are concerned about getting sober or going to therapy, uh, getting help is... I think we all had a sense in that darkness that there was some awful, gunky stuff down in there that must be pretty awful because it was driving us in an invisible way. And, and, and I was afraid if I went into therapy or quit using or got into AA, that it would be like ripping the Band-Aid off. And all the shit would come spewing out all at once and it would overwhelm me emotionally and I'd have a breakdown. I mean, yeah. I, at some level unconsciously, I think I believed that. So here, I'm here with the good news. <laughs> 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 My experience was not that at all. Yeah. And it's, it's partly because of the support of the women and the sponsor and the sponsor is highly connected with their own what we call higher power, which can be the universe or Native American or Buddhist or whatever it is. But it's something bigger than fearful, constraining, hiding sickness. Yeah. <laughs> so this higher power, I'll just use that word, um, is guiding my sponsor who guides me how quickly to go. Um so it's it's like when I start the steps, you know, one, two, and three, it's like I admit I have a problem. There is something bigger than me that can help me. It's helping these people. I think I'll give it a try. You know, that's kind of one, two, and three. And then you get to four with the inventory and the, and the house cleaning. And now I've said that we have a sense that there's a, our houses are pretty dirty inside, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, yeah. um, I'll change a metaphor for a minute because it's almost like um, if you had a stick figure of a, of a woman, in my case, with a big heart in the middle, and then you imagined all these rocks and nasty things clinging to the heart so yeah. that the light could not get in and the light of love can't go out. You know, so it's like 
our emotions are screwed up because we don't know how to love and we don't know how to receive love because it, for a variety of reasons, okay? <laughs> so the healing is about some of those reasons. Hmm. And, and so it's not like in recovery when you get to the inventory step, it's going to pull every rock out, every piece of dirt, look at it all at once because you are guided and your higher power is guided is guiding your sponsor. So my first, it happens in layers. So my first layer was, oh my God, you know, doing the inventory, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I was afraid I would fail. I needed all this, you know, status and security and pretended and competed and, and gee, I must not like myself very much. So that was kind of one of the character defects when we go through four and five, you know, sharing the inventory with someone else. And then you say, what are the key things that are really blocking God or God? I'll use God. Higher powers, love coming in and out of your sure. life. One of those things clogging up your heart. And for me, it was self-loathing at that point. My negative self-talk was appalling. Hmm. And so um, that was, you know, like the first layer. And I started reprogramming my mind with uh, self-help tapes, you know, going to sleep, listening to the thing saying, you're, yeah. I'm people like me. I'm a good person. You know, <laughs> right. I, There's a lot of validity in that. Yeah, I listen yeah. to motivational videos on YouTube as I walk or box or bike all yeah. the time. Yeah. I fall asleep to them. I think that you start to believe and consume what you give yourself or exactly. what you give. And that's a big deal. I think that yeah. I want to point that out as, put an exclamation point on that because I think what you described is people don't realize that that is a really usable tactic. Yep. Something to yep. just give yourself positive energy, positive mm -hmm. vibe. Yeah. Cognitive reprogramming. It's very powerful. So, you know, then you get to step six and seven where you're living with this character defect and you're noticing how shitty you are to yourself in your head. And, <laughs> you know, nothing's ever good, but you're aware of it. Right. And, That's a big deal. But it's you really haven't gotten rid of it yet. You know, yeah. it hasn't even softened yet because there's that point of, oh, my God, I have this. But, ooh, it's really awful to live with this. So then we get to the seventh step saying, okay, higher power, you're keeping me sober. I think you could take this away, too. And we yeah. sincerely ask. Uh, you know, and then we go into amend steps and so on, and, and those are healing also. But I wanted to say, you know, this higher power and your sponsor, it's like that first inventory of house cleaning was like saying, you know, okay, you can lift a five pound weight. That's all we're going to give you, you know, mm -hmm. like having a great trainer, your higher power. Well, then a year or two later, I started hearing people talk about adult children of alcoholics and living, you know, their own alcoholic homes. And I spent some time with my family and I got some history and I realized, my God, there were alcoholics everywhere. And <laughs> yeah, they are everywhere. It's yeah, interesting. You know, in my family tree and I had no idea. So um, the next layer then, you know, I started going to adult children of alcoholics meetings and looked at all those characteristics and, oh, my God, the perfectionism and the craziness. And I mean, it was me 100 percent. And again, just like coming in with a drinking problem, coming in with this uh, emotional mess, I looked to the other people in the group who had been going to the group for quite a while and could tell stories of how they no longer were codependent. They no longer were perfectionistic and how much they had grown. So I started um, doing that program, but actually the next 
um, inventory that I did with my sponsor was using the adult children of alcoholic issues. So I did it on the perfectionism, the competitiveness, the, you know, I'm nothing if I don't get good grades, da, 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 da. Hmm. And, um, you know, went through the same things, wrote about it, expressed it to her, realized what needs I was trying to fulfill. I was just trying to keep myself secure feeling in a very insecure family setting. And so, you know, my therapist helped me to see that I, you know, I was just trying to take care of my needs. It wasn't like I was a bad person, all these divorces and everything. I was just looking in the wrong place, you know? (laughs) So that was the next one, you know, and I asked again, at work, I experienced a lot of negative consequences in the sixth step where we become entirely ready to have this pattern taken away. And then in step seven, I did ask. Well, so that was more like my higher power saying, okay, you're ready for the 10 pound weight, right? That was Mm -hmm. the second layer. Well, a few years later, I had no idea, but there was a 15 pound weight. (laughs) I was uh, out with my sponsor. We were doing something fun. And I said, oh, I saw the most interesting thing last night on TV. It was about date rape. And I'm So glad that I never had a date rape situation. And then I could feel this elevator drop in my stomach. And I thought, oh, my God, something did happen. And I don't know what it was. So, you know, the beauty of the program is that we can find people who've been through that before. We know how to get help. So I got a therapist who specialized in that because I was not going to go down that road alone. Right. And um, and I found just the right therapist, again, a higher powered thing. You know, I called three and the one that called me back was the one that led me through this whole thing. And, um, you know, we didn't, I had some memories of things that had happened, but what I liked so much about her approach was that it wasn't that I had to find every little incident and pick at the scab because the healing wasn't in what happened. The healing, emotional healing in me was the feelings that I took into my adult life from that experience, feeling that I had to always people please, not being able to set any boundaries, you know, being promiscuous. So I did um, isolate, I, I, you know, my therapist worked me through the angry letters that I wrote to, because I did have one thing that my father was still doing to his adult daughters even when I was working through this and I was able to write him a letter and say, I would like to have a conversation with you one-on-one. And my therapist was wonderful. It wasn't going to be telling him, no wonder I was divorced to him. And, you know, I did, I did all that in the letter that I burned, you know, and I vented it in a safe place in my therapy group. But when I met with him and this was so scary, but, when he hugged us girls, he would put his thumb on the side of our breast like that. I don't know if you can see. But I can see. Yeah. I mean, it was, and my sisters thought it was cute. So when I met with him, I just said, there's um, the way that you hug me and put your thumb on the side of my breast makes me extremely uncomfortable. And I l- would like you to stop. And he said, oh, okay. And he never did it again. Hmm. Isn't that bizarre? But I claimed my power to keep myself safe because when something, and I think there were other things that happened too, but 
anyway, the point was I was always on high alert. Something bad is coming to get me and I'm powerless to protect myself against it. That's where having a higher power helps, you know, and my female friends, because when I get scared, when the situation doesn't really merit the fear, but I know it's an old kind of patterned reaction. You know, now I have all kinds of ways to soothe myself to say, well, we used to feel that way, but right now I'm perfectly safe. There's nothing, you know, to work through it. So that emotional healing um, is gradual and gentle, but you do have to stay. I think therapy is fabulous and I, if it, or counseling, and I think um, having a sponsor and working the steps is really key. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm speechless. I shouldn't be speechless because this is a podcast and I'm, I'm just, I'm really impressed with your ability to, I'm going to say methodically, but I, I it, and I mean that in a compliment because you, you have such a, a wonderful ability to describe each step and the associated emotions for you personally in a wonderful way that's very clear to, right. for people to understand and hear. It's, um, I'm very moved by what you just described. And the, the one thing that strikes me most is your ability to recognize what I'll call like a monumental shift inside you, which told you that there was a problem at hand that needed to be dealt with in the way that you just gracefully dealt with it. Oh, well, <laughs> gracefully. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's the shock and awe period, just like there is when we first realize we have a substance abuse problem. Every new character issue, emotional issue has its initial phase of, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but if we stick with the process, it gets healed. It really does. I, I, yeah. I, it's yeah. very impressive. I, yeah. I so I'd like you to continue, but I do have a question. I'm going to just put it out there now so that we I can circle back on it. I'd like to spend a little time on how to help people learn to embrace, to receive love. Because that's one thing that I still struggle with. And my wife points it out a lot um, mm-hmm. in a good way, in a loving way, not in a bad way. And it's just something yeah. that I think is a very hard thing to get used to. The I'm going to say exposing yourself to be able to receive love. It's hard for me. Very, very hard. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'd like to just put that out there and we can come back to it. I don't want to interrupt your wonderful story. So please. Well, it, it kind of fits in because um, I don't know, I must've been 25 years sober. So, and I um, went to visit my family and I, I had had a lot of issues with my mom that were, you know, under the radar, never talked about, but, and, and I had healed from those so that I felt, completely able to help her in her elderly years and never felt like, oh, you know, like that lack, you know, that I Mm -hmm. need something and I'll never get it. You know, all that was healed. So I'm in the airplane flying home from Maryland to Michigan. And um, it occurred to me, I wonder if I could put some of the stuff that I've learned over the years, not just in the program, but from the other tools that I've discovered in a book that would help people, whether they're in recovery or not. And so I took out a pencil and paper and I thought, well, it's not going to be the 12 steps all over again, but what are the key things people need to heal? And then I thought I've discovered all these techniques that I've, so I can put those in there. So I figured, well, you have to um, really get honest. You really can't clean up your life unless you admit there's a problem, you know, and you're willing to do something about it. Um, I believe this higher power thing or some source of 
energy, courage, whether it's your true self inside of you or something outside of you. However, that, that has really helped me. And I think it's helpful for many, many people. So this, you know, you have to be honest, claim some kind of power other than my own fear self. Then the, um, there's only four of them, but the other one is to make choices, choose how I want my life to be and do the work to get there. And so I include all the law of attraction stuff and all that. And then, and, and affirmations and, um, and then you have to work your ass off doing, (laughs) using the tools, you know, if it, so the way the book works is, um, there's a story of something that happened in my life and then what a, a brief story, uh, because it's really for the reader. And then I, I say, for example, I had two frozen shoulders at the same time and I could hardly drive my car or write to change jobs, etc. And at that time I discovered someone suggested to me this beautiful Buddhist nun named Pema Chodron. And it's easy to find her things, but she was the one when I read it, it said, you know, be present with the experience. Don't fight it. Let it be. You know, I mean, I hadn't really been exposed to any Buddhist kinds of ideas until then. And so I listened to her a lot and I tried some of her ideas. So that's an example, you know, when uh, chapter five was the one that I just told the story the whole story to you about that was the hardest one to to write because those layers sure. um and i when i was writing that i went for energy work to clear out some of those negative uh, a theme in the book is we have these whispered lies <laughs> telling us oh you can't do that or it's never going to be good enough or da 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 happens to me all yeah, the time yeah and it And so the whole book is about how to overcome your whispered lies because my negative thinking has been the problem. Once I put down the drink, it was the thinking. So, um, you know, I have in there the tapping, the cranial sacral work, the different things. And I give, you know, I illustrate how I used it. And then I have a little exercise where I guide you through how to use it. So that would be another example. And here's a really fun chapter to write, chapter six. (laughs) I was halfway through the book. My husband, who hasn't had a drink for 30 years, decides he's going to have a drink. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Just to throw a curveball, you know. (laughs) So, uh, well, I did not laugh. I'll tell you that. I'll bet not, yeah. We we had a conversation uh, because uh, he knew that, you know, I was very involved with AA and sponsoring women and so on, and he knew it would freak me out. So he said, could you live with I if I had only two drinks, no more? And I said, yeah, that would be social drinking. And he had a different substance that he ended up going to treatment for 30 years ago. So I thought, well, who knows? I'm not God. Well, then about after six months of that, uh, I see him have three or four drinks. And then I observe my husband inebriated for the first time. And I just about died. And I, I couldn't talk to him. So I knew about Al-Anon. I called my friends who were working Al-Anon and I said, how the hell do I get an Al-Anon sponsor? Because I knew that if I expressed, if I talked to him out of it, if I talked to him about it from my panicked, freaked out state, nothing good would come of it. 
And that's true for almost any problem. And it's really the recommendation in my book is to use a tool to get yourself unstuck from the ceiling, <laughs> whether yeah. it's a bunch of Al-Anon meeting, calling a friend, meditating, praying. I mean, there are 50 ways to worry less now in my book. So yeah. I worked Al-Anon and uh, tell that whole story. I discovered then another tool called radical forgiveness. So that's kind of like a spiritual tool. So some of the tools are spiritual, some are energetic, and some are cognitive. But that one led me into this process where I realized I was thinking my husband had turned against me just like my father had. I needed to forgive my father for the drinking and the chaos. And as soon as I stopped seeing my father in my husband, I was able to talk to him without blame and attack and tell him how afraid I was. And so th there were there were other pieces to the story, but the upshot is, you know, he could have turned out to be an alcoholic drinker again and never gotten in sobriety. And I would have had to deal with that. And I had Al-Anon and I had my higher power and I had my female friends and I, I knew I would somehow get through it. Um, he would get back into recovery or he would turn out to be a social drinker. And I only saw him inebriated that one time. Hmm. He, it doesn't freak me out when he has a drink. Yeah. Many times he doesn't. It's an amazing outcome. Because it was, I thought, you know, when something scary happens, we go into our uh, catastrophizing <laughs> thinking. For sure. Oh, yeah. You go back into yeah. the routines, if you will, or the reactions that you had. And exactly. I, I, I totally get it. My yeah. wife drinks a little bit here and there um, mm -hmm. in, you know, a glass of wine or two once every three, four, five, six months, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty okay with it, to be yeah. honest. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me because I've always known her to have drinks. And mm -hmm. she's always, if she drank a lot, it was because it was, it was because she was drinking with me, but yeah. she never was inclined to do it without me. You know, yeah. I'm sure when she was younger, perhaps, but so I, I get that. And, and um, I'm trying to get her to quit smoking. That's one thing I'm pushing on a little bit, uh -huh. but it's, again, that's, that's, that's her hill to climb, not mine. Yep. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So it's been, I mean, writing a self-help book is the last thing I thought I'd ever do when I worked at the university because I actually did finish the doctorate <laughs> and worked in um, the education and psychology. And so I taught a lot. So you have to write and do, but I did more like academic writing or practical articles for teachers. So I had a background in writing, but I had, so I knew how to kind of organize things, but I... I, well, as you said, I, I just, you know, I was able to get very honest. Yeah. And um, because so many women have had something happen to them and, um, and a lot of women drink over it or have a lot of anxiety. Yeah. And growing up in an alcoholic home leaves its own sort of trauma. So I think we all need tools to help allay our stress and anxiety and overthinking and worry. The one thing that is always I've found, and I'm not saying this in a disparaging way, but I think that 
the world in people's lives is filled with chaos. Whatever that means to the individual, it could be an alcoholic home, it could be, unfortunately, some type of abuse, or whatever level of pain that is. To try to avoid that at all costs is is almost impossible because life happens. Right. I am not in any way, shape, or form justifying anything, but what I am saying, I think the way to get through life and be happy is to learn the proper coping mechanisms and the proper responses and to have the right network, as you said, of sober friends or friends that can help get you through it the right way. Not let's go out and drink, let's not go out and do a bunch of cocaine. I'm saying to help you work through the problem, recognizing the challenges and, and handling things the right way. Some problems are super challenging, difficult, and take years to get through. Mm-hmm. I'm not naive to believe otherwise. Yeah, But sometimes um, being an addict, I would over-respond and run to the alcohol or the drugs because I was comfortable there. Right. And you, had, for me, uh, I had 40 years of terrible habits to break to get yes. sober. And people sometimes don't realize that you are literally taking a very hard left turn on your former life. And to break 40 years of bad habits takes time and patience and commitment in lots of layers, like your book describes Mm -hmm. coping mechanisms and finding happiness through structured response, Mm -hmm. positive structured response. And I love that because that has been the one thing for me and mine has turned out to be like a somatic response for me. I like exercising and walking and boxing. Mm -hmm. And that has been really wonderful for me in days that I can't do it because of something. And there are rare days when I don't do it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, rare, like once every six months, I might not get something in. And that does not happen often. Wow. And it throws me for a loop. So I have to be careful not to become addicted to the process too. I've got to balance that the right way. So, but I love, I love that I can say I'm addicted to a two mile walk in an eight rounds of boxing versus an Mm -hmm. eight ball. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think um, people in Alcoholics Anonymous because of the God language and higher power quite often do find a spiritual path. You know, I mean, I think we go with, as you said in the last interview with Karen that I listened to, that it was, you know, we have a spiritual, cognitive, energetic body, you know, different. And so there's all different kinds of tools. For me, I've found a lot of help. And I think, you know, a spiritual path for me, I was really leery about dogmatic Christianity. And for, for the people it works for, fabulous. I have no judgments at all. I just, I just couldn't buy it for myself. Um, But I, some people in the program took me to this guy who had a a unity church, not Unitarian, but unity. Sure. And it's, um, and he was in the 12 step program. And when he talked, my bullshit detector didn't go off. <laughs> yeah, I totally know what you mean. I, I get it. Yeah. I do. And you're I looking thought, for hypocrisy yeah, and I yeah. get it. Yeah. And he talked a lot about the principles we learn in the program, but also uh, what's called a course in miracles. And Marianne Williamson is uh, has a bestseller about a course in miracles that she wrote in the 90s that it kind of explains it, but it's called A Return to Love. Now, that doesn't work for everybody, but for many people, finding a spiritual path of Buddhism, meditation, Christianity, um, this Course in Miracles path, you know, I study that 
because in the 11th step, it says, you know, increase our conscious contact, improve our conscious contact with a higher power. And um, it invites us to pursue a variety of ways, not just the 12 steps, but go on a, a journey to find that that force that you can count on, a force for good that will work in your life. You know, so I do explain a little bit about A Course in Miracles and um, try to explain to the reader that you do not have to pick a traditional concept of a higher power, even a female concept, which really worked for me in the beginning. I found, you know, went to this thing and it turned out a lot of females wrote some were were very um, divine teachers in early Christianity. And I hadn't even known that. So for a while I had like the divine female as my higher power because I was a little leery about men at that point. <laughs> I, I like the concept of people taking in, in being accepting of a unique path of their own, whatever their higher power, whatever their path is. I think that you have to, part of the wall that needs to come down is trusting in yourself to choose the right path. I realize I'm making this very basic and simple, but I think that you have to learn to trust yourself Mm -hmm. that you're going to take the the right first step and second step and so on. And the real healing I think Mm -hmm. begins when you start to waver and you feel it and then you make a slight adjustment. It's about making the adjustments in your life because I do believe that it's a holistic healing, like like you mentioned in, in a previous episode. I, I think that there's layers to healing, and you you're always at the right place at the right time for yourself, and you have to learn to get through and deal with whatever's in front of you at the moment. And I think that you need to lean into whatever the path is at that time, all with the aim of a higher power. I do believe in that, and if it is dogma, then let it be dogma. But if it's not, then let it be something else. Uh, And I love that. And I think for me, one of the things I still struggle with, and I just want to circle back maybe in closing, if we may, is just opening up to receiving love. Mm -hmm. I do still struggle with that. I, I don't resist it and push it away, but I don't make it easy for it to get in. (laughs) So I guess I push it away. I I, I suppose the opposite of accepting is not accepting. So I'm curious And my poor wife, she's wonderful and helpful and supportive, but like little things when she says, give me a hug, like, I have to always make like a funny little joke about it or something. I can't just give in in a mm-hmm. good way. And I still struggle. And I wonder how many years it'll be before mm-hmm. I can get into a good place for that. One of the things that um, helped with my husband and me is the the four, the love languages. H- have you read that book? I have the not. Love, there are four love languages. It's very simple. But the idea is that one partner thinks that love is expressed through one path and therefore the partner ought to express it that way. But the partner, the partner's natural way of expressing it is something else. Like my husband's not physically affectionate, uh, but he fixes things for me all the time. It's how he shows love. So that's one thing, but I was going to say, you know, how I talked before about the heart being all clogged up with all this emotional Mm -hmm. baggage and then we heal. Well, the heart becomes open. It becomes a source of light within us. And that's like our higher self, our true self. That, and that's the part you're talking about that can give you those you know, nudges, intuitive nudges. So when our heart is open, um, then f- one of the things that helped me, I had a therapist. We did 
the same therapist who helped me with all the abuse stuff, she said, I just want you to lie down and experience love, loving power from whatever source you want to imagine it streaming into you, enfolding you. It's like, you know, if, if we were made, and who knows what's true, but if we were made by a creator, then that creator, we could imagine that creator loving us. Just like when I hold my little kitty and look down at it so lovingly, we can imagine, uh, you know, maybe our higher power has that sense for us or our higher self loves our human self, you know, so much. So I think the being open to giving and receiving love, receiving love, I put a whole section in my book. How easy is it for you to receive love? Because it's same for yeah, me. It's hard. Yeah. It, and I, it's something we work on, but I, even today I was feeling this gratitude, you know, well, feeling gratitude. What is that? It's receiving love. It's, it's loving what we're receiving. I have really enjoyed and learned so much from you. I am thrilled that you've been on the show. And thank you. And I'm, thank you. I so appreciate the, the, the thread of your narrative in terms of the way that we, you shared your story and that the way that you've aligned it with the book and have sh shared through the book. Because I, what I have learned, um, and I'll make this one tiny alignment for me, is... I did not like social media. I, I found it to be kind of dirty and ugly in a lot of ways. And then I realized it was me. I was using it the wrong way and looking at the ugly side of it. Mm. But what I have found to be true, that in, especially in the recovery community, because um, we're all brothers and sisters in arms here, that uh -huh. there is a wonderful community out there. And if you ask for help, you will get help. And sometimes you just need someone to like a comment or write something back nice or give you a little support or sometimes a harsh word too. Whatever it might need, whatever you need, you put it out there. And I have found that on Twitter and Instagram, this wonderful community of support. Um, and I'll say faceless because I don't personally know them. But, it did, but right. I love how welcoming and open the community has been. And it led me to you, and which I think is tremendous. And I'm so grateful to have had you on the show. So I have social media to thank. And then, of course, um, I'm excited to read your book. And thank you so very much for being on the show. Thanks, Anthony. I really enjoyed our talk.